0: Welcome to Autism Weekly, the podcast that discusses autism news, current events, and inclusion. Each week, we welcome a guest to the program to share their unique perspective and expertise as it relates to the fascinating world of autism. I'm your host, Jeff Skibitzky. I'm the founder and president of ABS Kids. I've been in the field of autism and applied behavior analysis as a clinician and advocate for nearly two decades. This week, we are excited to welcome co-CEO of Ascend Behavior Partners, Jonathan Mueller, to the podcast to talk about the future of autism care. Jonathan and I, I believe that we both share that same goal of making high quality ABA therapy as accessible as possible to children and families in need. Today, we're gonna tackle this subject. We're gonna talk about access to care, the challenge our field has with tackling long wait lists, as well as any technology that we can use to improve the way we provide this care. Jonathan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Jeff, it's an honor to be here. I'm excited for the conversation. I'm I'm excited too, and you know what? I since we have two people who have been in the field for a long time, I thought it would be really fun just to start with uh, some wow moments. So this story, as I said, comes from an ABS kids behavior analyst out of Layton, Utah, and her name is Annie. So this this story happened over the course of several months, which is typical for ABA or any therapeutic service, is that it it's not immediate. So what she told us was that her kiddo had some major maladaptive behaviors that were a danger to himself and others. Um, oftentimes, those are priorities for care. And for this one, it was the most challenging case she'd ever come on to. Add to the fact that she has dangerous behaviors, um, this child had no motivation for interaction. All of their motivation was intrinsic. It was to make themselves feel good at the moment. So they didn't want to interact with others. And and you can imagine how hard sessions were for everyone. And not only that, but how hard it probably was for the family and anybody who's a part of that child's life. So what Annie ended up doing is that she used a lot of research. She collaborated with teammates. And she had a lot of patience from every party involved so that she wasn't rushing to judgment, rushing to a clinical decision. So what what she's been able to see over time with this patient and this analysis is that she's starting to see the behaviors reduce. It's almost at a 10th of the frequency that it used to. Um, During that same time, not only did the behaviors reduce, but oftentimes in behavior analysis is that you see a new skill evolve. So this replacement behavior of some of his verbal skills He's laughing. He's smiling. His life is that much more powerful. And he's motivated to be around other people. Um, Just the fact that right now, Sammy's getting greeted at the door by this child is such a huge wow moment. And these are the things for our behavior analysts, our behavior techs, our families. It's looking at, wow, this is going to be really tough. It's been tough for years for this family. What's that small step I can make? And she was able to break through. And I couldn't imagine what this means for that child. So that's her wow moment. Jonathan, do you have a wow moment you can share with us? I know that we all have them. I'd love to hear yours.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And let me just reflect. I mean, the fact, um, I had goosebumps, as you described Annie's. The fact that, like, she was collaborating and learning. I think Albert Einstein didn't he have that quote, like, if we're not learning, we're dying. Um, and that I, that like perfectly symbolizes, I think, you know, exemplars for us. Um, and yeah, just the basics of a kiddo being able to laugh, greet someone at the door, I have goosebumps. So, I, my wow moment um, goes back to one of the kiddos that um, uh, that we've served, uh, who was in sort of middle elementary school years, had never had applied behavior analysis treatment before, um, and was virtually nonverbal, really couldn't communicate with other members of her family, with her mom or dad, um, with our RBT who was working with her. Um, and so over the course of six months, it's really powerful to see, uh, and this is just a little bit of the context of the setup to my wow moment, but powerful to see that she could actually enjoy a meal and sit down for 30 minutes at dinner time with her mom and dad. So all this progress we saw. Well, we also were working with her on her functional communication skills and um, uh, about six months into treatment, Literally, Jeff, out of the blue, her, her and your dad and mom had just come home from work and she looked at them and said, I love you. And she had never said that before. And it's one of those things that's like, like we take it for granted, um, but it was the most powerful thing that I've ever experienced in my 10 plus years in the fields. And um, it was so powerful, this family, and I think it speaks to the power of uh, of the work we do. And it's really, really hard work, right? but it helps kiddos
0: become their best selves. Yeah, that is, that's amazing. I mean, yeah, I hear the emotion in your voice, but I could only imagine the emotion from the family members that are sitting there and for the first time is that they can share, I'm sure they felt love before, but to hear love and hear that expression in a different way, it, it must have been tear jerking for everybody involved. And I mean, for them to share that story with you all, I'm sure it was one of those things where it was like everybody in the room, probably you didn't have a dry eye in the house. Not at all. Not a dry eye in the house was right. Well, this, this actually ties really well. And I'm glad that you gave a story that talked about somebody who probably didn't access care or didn't access treatment for such a long part of their life. Um, because right now, is there is still a problem with being able to provide that quality care to everyone in need. And it's a capacity issue with the field. It's a growth within the field. But all of these things are kind of compounding on each other because service is available. It's mandated, but we don't have enough providers out there. So I guess what I'll put out there is, is I'd love to hear from your perspective how damaging it could potentially be for somebody's development to miss out on years of care. The short answer is that it can be extraordinarily damaging. Um, you know, what the research
1: says um, and what we see is, um, especially for young kiddos, families have one chance to really work on this comprehensive set of skills um, that, um Uh, you know, that will help the family and the child live their best life, skills that we take for granted in typically developing kiddos. So we know, for example, that 90% of the brain develops by age five, right? And there's just brain plasticity that exists that, you know, with highly effective um, ABA and a wraparound set of treatments can develop that whole range of skills and work on a whole set of behaviors um, that will improve the kiddo's quality of life. But once, you know, after that age, there's – you could certainly work on more focused and specific goals around certain behaviors or certain kinds of communication. um, But you, you miss out on that opportunity to to work on that broad range of skills. That includes everything from communication to social skills and interactions to potty training, to you name it. Again, things we take for granted in typically developing kiddos. So it is so important. Um, uh, And as a parent myself, you know, like, we always have questions about our kiddos developmentally, and oh, are they on the right track or are they not? And what we always encourage is, that when in doubt, if you ever have a question, ask. Always ask. Call your pediatrician. They're going to be terrific in, um, uh, in providing feedback and answering questions. And, um, and it's so damaging when we hear um, families talk about, oh gosh, people told me, oh, Junior would, you know, he'll talk eventually, right? Uh, he'll be fine. Just wait. Don't wait reach out, get answers, and ask questions now. That is absolutely
0: critical. Yeah, and that immediate access to care is that 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 shows up in the literature. It shows up in the overall prognosis for somebody to be able to reach all the milestones, but more importantly, live the life that they would like to live, self-determination, being able to contribute in whatever way they want. And it does start early, but we're still running into that problem we're running into the problem that you might have a 3-year-old that is waiting 6 months for a diagnosis, waiting another 3 months to access a ABA assessment after being diagnosed. So now you're creeping on 4 years of age. You missed a year of treatment. So maybe you can give us a little bit of background right now just as an industry what is this typical waitlist situation like? What is the pain that's being felt by providers right now on their waitlist?
1: So we see generally waitlists anywhere from a few months, as you described, to sometimes a year or more. And there are a number of things that influence that that we can talk about. Um, uh, But really importantly, I I think you highlighted this critical this sort of two-step process is in order to access this life-changing treatment, ABA, It's you have to have an autism diagnosis. Now, um, for families with Medicaid, Medicaid does not require that, and we can put a pin in that and come back to it. But generally, you need an autism diagnosis. And in our experience, in, in all the states that we work in, Colorado, Texas, Arizona, um, waitlist to get a, 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 an evaluation for a di- an autism diagnosis, even for young kiddos, can be 12 months plus. It's just extraordinarily long. It's actually a big part of the reason. My, my co-founder, uh, 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 one of my co-founders, Dr. Mike Wright, is a licensed psychologist in BCBA. We actually built a psychology team um, because we said this is unacceptable. <laughs> Parents deserve to have answers to get answers um, uh, to questions about their their kiddo's development. And so, um, so yes. And then, so the, and that's the diagnostic side with ABA. Again, that can stretch from months to to a year plus, and one of the biggest determinants that we see of that is age. Generally, we observe that the younger the kiddo, the more capacity um, that, um, uh, that providers have to serve them, and that's a function of availability for being seen in the daytime, um, uh, as opposed to being seen after school when you know, most kiddos are, 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 um, are going to be in school. Um, and the other, the other huge thing is um, you know, rural versus, um, versus urban areas. Um, and there are some extraordinary stats out there, just lack of access to resources. Um, I think there's some like 1,600 plus counties that don't have a behavior analyst in, in our country. And, um, and so that rural-urban divide is huge.
0: Yeah, I mean, you just outlined several of the problems that I think need to be tackled, that solutions need to be found for that might not be Readily solvable right now, but we need to start inching our way to figuring it out. Um, and maybe what we do is we we tackle them one by one right now and just talk about maybe kind of uh, spitfire some solutions and and make it a hey let's what are we here right now that's going out in the field. But the first step that you were talking about was the diagnostics, and mm-hmm. I know that um, uh, like. Uh, your organization is that there are others that are really focusing on: hey, let's get psychologists, let's create more of a community of psychologists that actually focus on autism, that really understand autism, that know the assessment process for being able to evaluate and diagnose autism. Um, so that's one step to it. But are there technologies? Are there different enhancements right now going into diagnostics? That might help this process to speed up.
1: Yes, there certainly are. Because I you, you make the great point, Jeff, that we're not gonna simply produce that many more psychologists that are gonna be we're we're not gonna you know grow um, sufficient numbers of providers to to um, you know to address this. And so you know there's a couple things. So um, you're familiar with Cognoa, I'm sure, but um, Cognoa is um, Uh, very recently actually got FDA approval to use what is an online um, assessment and asks a family a series of questions um, that informs autism diagnosis, yes or no. Uh, And that's super promising. Now, I think the technology has a long way to go because um, I think the the latest I saw was that it was something around 30 to 40 percent of kiddos um, that took it would actually get a determination, yes or no. The others would be referred out to. Uh, for more detailed testing, but that's powerful, and the fact that the um, you know the FDA has now approved that technology, I think um, certainly means that's going to um, uh, democratize more access to to um, uh, to diagnoses, and other technologies will likely follow. There's some really interesting research that I've read. Um, I think it's Dr. Wall out of Stanford that actually looked at one of the more common diagnostic tools called the ADIR, and there's something like I don't know, there's a hundred different questions on it, but using Um, machine learning and algorithms in his research. He actually, he pinpointed that of those 100 questions, there were seven that with a 99% certainty led to uh, a diagnosis, no diagnosis. So that's an example, I think, of the really powerful research, again, sort of algorithm machine learning informed that's happening now that will hopefully lead to more of these technologies um, and easier access to evaluations.
0: Yeah, I think that innovation is so important because that's that's the that's the first pig in the python. It's getting the kids in to get evaluated and to have a surety that their diagnosis is valid. It's to to give the family the right information right off the right off the cuff. And I know that you have the research that's occurring in Stanford. You have the research that's occurring in Vanderbilt to be able to create more of a tele diagnostic model. Uh, for those rural communities that you discussed. But I think that that is that first step. Um, I just, I think back to families that have come in and asked about ABA care and just watching them go through the process, like, hold on, I have to get a diagnosis, but I can't get one for more than nine months out. And you're telling me, and this is where the pain hits, because they'll say is that you're telling me that the best chance for my child to succeed is intervention now. Intervention is costly out of pocket. It's very expensive to be able to cover. And the only way for me to get coverage is to have the appropriate diagnosis. I just set my child back. I just hurt my child by not being able to do that. It is painstaking as a parent to know that you've been handcuffed into not making the decision that you want for your child off of medical necessity. and. So I think some of those things are crucial to being able to to provide appropriate care. Um, is there anything about rural areas? Um, I know that there've been mobile clinics in the past that do diagnostic services, but outside of telediagnostics, is there any other thing that you've been hearing on rural services to be able to help create more of a community?
1: Honestly, there's not a ton. Uh, There's another organization uh, behavior imagery imaging that uses the naturalistic observation diagnostic assessments called Noda for short, Uh, and that's something a parent could go and access right now uh, and and Google it and and, um, essentially be set up uh, with an online account. You upload a few videos that a remote psychologist then would observe and provide feedback. but you hit on a really important point, Jeff, which is around, like, sort of community and, and, and how, how do parents, like, access and learn about these things. I mean, this, for every parent that experience, or starts to have, have questions about their kiddo developmentally or gets a recommendation for a diagnosis, I mean, there's a million and one questions that they have, and there's, they're going through it for the first time right? And you know how it is and and how long we've been in the field. And we still have lots of questions, right? We don't have all the answers. And imagine, as you know, a parent going through it for the first time, it's really hard. And it feels like there's an opportunity out there to, um, you know, to build um, more effective online communities. I think those happen sort of organically now through Facebook groups and elsewhere. But one of the, you know, piece of feedback we hear from parents when they get a diagnosis um, is, I mean, certainly this is, it can be—it's absolutely life-changing. Many parents report to us that they go through a grieving process for the child they thought they had. And what we also hear is that they feel like they've been now uh, introduced into a new community that they never would have known existed. And I think for parents that um, really just you know advocate for their kids and are going out and trying to figure out best treatments and trying to find online parent groups, that stuff is out there and can be found. But it can be really hard, right? And It takes a ton of time. It's almost like a 40 hour a week job, a ton of time and intention. It feels like there's there's some type of solution out there to create intentional communities um, that parents can access to get everything from just sort of the moral support and, um, you know, asking questions of other parents to recommendations on treatment and different providers who will be right for their child.
0: And the community is is always important. I don't know a single group out there that doesn't benefit from having a springboard to be able to talk through any of the concerns they have, understand something that is new to them. Um, Because within that community that you're talking about is that people want to hear success stories. They also want to hear that, hey, my child has 30 different friends that they're engaging with. This is where they go in the community. These are the resources that are out there for them to have fun and to be able to play. And this is how I've made them successful. Um, all of that is is so crucial. So, I mean, I think that that's very important. I think that having a forum to be able to do that is equally valuable. So I guess uh, before going into how do we build more capacity, I wanna stop and just go with the realization, there will be wait lists right now. One of the things that you just brought up was, you know, let's create these communities so people have resources with each other. What can ABA providers do to be able to manage their wait list and provide some support to families while families are trying to be able to access care, so that they're not left on an island without any possible solutions.
1: This is so important, Jeff, I, and it's something I'm deeply passionate about. The number one thing ABA providers can do is give families dignity. Give every single family who reaches out that dignity. And you know, one of the things we encourage our you know our scheduling and care navigation teams is, um, you know, put yourself in a family's shoes, right, and think about. Um, this parent who's so eager to help their kiddo to get questions and to move away from this idea of like customer services, just what's the next thing on the to do list and how I save time ticking through that to thinking more about families living with autism or looking for a diagnosis. They, they deserve Ritz-Carlton royalty type treatment. And so think about this as customer experience. Right. And this is something, by the way, that like hospitality does so well. And it's it's a big pet peeve I have around our field is why can't we bring that same Ritz Carlton Disney experience to families? But what's huge about this is think about um, giving that dignity and time to every parent who calls. So that's one. A second is transparency around actual wait times. Um, You know, my expectation is that every ABA provider could say this is the date I can schedule you. And does that work for you? As opposed to, oh, we're going to put you on a wait list, and you know we'll be in touch if something opens. There's nothing more defeating to a parent um, needing to call in and hearing that. And look, I've got a kid who is not on the spectrum, but needed some um, psychologist support, and it was just, it was, it, it, it was so hard to hear. Oh, okay, we've got your name on a list, and um, and 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 we'll call you uh, at some point, undetermined in the future. Um, and I always encourage, if there is a date given, overestimate, right? So a family has realistic expectations. Um, really critical to provide ongoing communication and updates. Right? Here's where we are in the process. Is the date the same? Has it changed? Um, and then the next is so crucially provide access to additional resources. Right? There are there there are um, parent training or parent trainings that happen. There is curricula. There are resources online. Um, That always feels critical to making sure that um, uh, parents can do something and get some of their questions answered in the meantime. And I think also really important if it's gonna be, I won't give a specific date, but if it's gonna be far enough out, um, make sure you're providing families, other resources that uh, other ABA providers that you know might have a sooner opening, Um, because this is not about one ABA provider versus another provider. This is about the future of a family, um, and, and and their child's future, and so um, that has always felt really important. Give them access to additional providers who might have openings more quickly.
0: Yes, I mean dignity, transparency, communication, empowerment. Who doesn't want that laundry list of items? I mean, it's it's something that we probably would all appreciate, and probably there's no reason that we all wouldn't deserve it in any walk of life or any industry that's providing care, especially in social services. Um, as you start looking through it, is that, I mean, has the field of ABA, I know for us that so we have we have data analysts that are looking at things constantly to be able to evaluate wait wait times for service and being able to really look at our hiring needs and be able to kind of grow with that. But is that something within the ABA field that you see as uh, maybe a developing technology? Are people starting to invest more in that so that they can give the transparency that you're talking about and really feel comfortable with the data? Or is that something that is still relatively novel?
1: I think for our field, we're in the early, early innings. It is relatively novel to have the type of data analytic systems that um, would help to do what I heard you describe, just really, really effective workforce planning right at, at the end of the day it's we, there's a kiddo who needs services and there's a, a staff a vcba an and rbt and maybe some other psychologists social work etc and we, and we need to line up that availability and here's what gets me jeff if you were to look at another industry i don't know trucking guess what? There are so many apps and technologies and robust platforms that manage the most complex logistical situations you can imagine. And those haven't come yet to our field. They will. That's what, you know, gives me comfort. Uh, And the question is, um, what feels really important is either those apps, you know, those technology providers are going to try to pivot and, and, and provide solutions to our field, or ABA providers, our field can demand. Look, this is stuff we need to do. We need to invest in it on our own, whether it's building an app or just spending some of that, you know, additional uh, uh, money in in much better workforce planning. But it feels like that's coming. But I'll, I'll just throw like one other data point out there, which is um, which is kind of crazy, and, and you you highlighted this earlier. You know, one of the things that influences wait lists across different regions and different states that we see um, is, again, just like supply of workforce, right? Can you hire RBTs? And um, this is the the nutty statistic on this is that um, in some of the areas, if you were to go to a large metro area in Texas, um, you know, a, a common way that many ABA providers find staff is through, you know, Facebook and Google ads. And it'll cost about 48 cents if you're in Houston, Texas, to place an ad. Um, you go to um, Phoenix, and you know how much it costs for a click, for one click, 48 cents in Houston. In parts of Phoenix, it's over $54 a click. And I mean, this is orders of magnitude difference. And so, you know, I don't share that from the perspective of, oh, it's just going to be hard. And, you know, so that is what it is. I share it from the perspective of how does our field think creatively about. How number one, how we make licensure as efficient as possible to get through. How do we make reciprocity of licensure across states, which exists, um, you know, in much of the rest of healthcare. How do we make that as easy as possible? Um, and how do we think about? Um, for for some, there are not many areas of the country that have more BCBA's than um, uh, you know, ratio wise than, than kids with autism. But um, you know, if uh, if if we are able to bring those kiddos to underserved areas, that that's a powerful thing.
0: Yeah. And I think that that workforce planning piece, especially when you're looking around uh, recruiting and retention. I mean, we're in a we're in a funky time right now, post-COVID or not post-COVID. We're still in the heart of it. Um, But we're in a we're in a very difficult time with um, being able to really support the staff that is doing the hardest work all the time and investing in them, investing in their career. And helping them to identify what we talked about in the beginning, the wow moments. Mm -hmm. But it's crucial for a wait list is that if you have turnover, that is going to affect your wait list. It's going to affect quality of care and it's going to affect the individual patient that just lost their staff. So it's something that has to be tackled. But if it is so hard to recruit, um, then we need to be creative with our solutions. And I like the fact that you're saying is that, you know, it is a problem. But there is a solution on the other end of that problem that we need to start evaluating as a field to be able to make this job something where people can feel the passion, see it in real life and decide to commit to it as a career path. Um, so at, uh, I know that about 10 years ago is that I started really looking at, you know, how do we get more BCBAs in the field? And I'm sure this is something that you all are addressing on an everyday basis, but investing in education, um, helping them get their masters, working and giving supervision. But what are some of the things that you're seeing right now that are going to be those crucial drivers to be able to have more and more clinicians available for these patients so that maybe it isn't solving the right now wait list problem but maybe the wait lists start to dis- dissipate over time because we actually have capacity.
1: Yeah, so I think there's there's a handful of drivers in my mind. I think one is um, investing in education and on a couple levels. So one level is just like how quickly can we get um, uh, you know accredited, high quality master's programs in as many. Um, Uh, higher ed institutions that that we can. I I know it's becoming more common, um, and there are more programs out there, and there's more online programs, right? This is just part of the way the world has gone, especially in the last year and a half with COVID. And I think that's really powerful, and that's democratizing access then to that kind of education. So um, I think a a strong push and advocacy to build capacity for higher ed is critical. The the second component of that though um, is you know, as you well know, know, it's one thing to get your master's. It's another thing to get all of the, you know, what are now, I think, 2,000 plus hours that are needed of both direct and other um, uh, um, uh, sort of indirect um, hours. And so, you know, one of the things we see more broadly in the field is the quality of that supervision is all over the map. And so I think there's an opportunity to, uh, again, this is where technology, I think, can help, but what are ways that we better connect BCBAs who have that gift and that strong desire to mentor and lead the next generation of behavior analysts and maybe they they you know these are BCBAs that don't want to just go have a you know work with kiddos every single day I think there are a lot out there that um, if we find better matching programs of those high quality supervisors and um, help bcbas experience what high quality supervision a lot of bcbas that that i hear from say one of the biggest predictors of like me feeling confident in the field is that my supervisor was outstanding that feels really important a third thing i'd say is um aba providers themselves investing in the highest quality training programs and that is both at the you know we call it our BCBA fellowship program or a residency program where you know we're helping um, individuals who are going through their masters to get the supervision and then uh, be successful in the exam. I know you know ABS has has similar things. Um, every ABA provider should have that type of um, uh, that type of program to supplement you know what what exists otherwise in in higher ed. So I, I think that feels crucial too. And oh by the way. Um, Learning is not like a one-off thing, right? It's like excellence, right? Excellence is not a destination, excellence is a journey. Learning the same way is a journey. And um, it, it, it behooves ABA providers, I think, to provide Ongoing learning experiences and build that into the culture of their organization because there is new research getting published every day, right? Um, there are um, there's all kinds of things um, that um, you know behavior analysts RBTs that support staff can access. So I think making uh, a culture of learning um, is one of the most critical things an ABA organization can do to 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 address that that capacity.
0: I, I love all those ideas. And it actually goes back to, I think, in the beginning where I said I thought that we had a lot of shared goals and values. Now I know that we do. But um, <laughs> the other the other thing I think that, uh, that's important to kind of look at and to know exists both as a parent and as a clinician in an organization is to know that there's an investment in quality. And that that could be a quality assurance department Um, It could be just the way that you're looking at and evolving those training programs. But somebody has to head that up. Somebody has to be looking at, am I creating strong outcomes? Am I creating a compliant workforce? And is the quality of my service best practice at all times? And I think that that's something that our field needs to invest more and more in. And I think that that's what's really going to set apart those organizations that are able to thrive. Is that they've invested in a quality department um, and started really evaluating that. Um, I actually I wanted to pivot a little bit just because one of the fun topics that I think is uh, it, something that I, really kind of excites me in the field is, is the problem solving. We've had a couple of guests in the past, uh, from one from uh, Florio Tech, I know that we had one from the Frist Center, um, that have talked about innovation in the field Innovation, um, and I think this ties into wait lists really well, because you're talking about older kids. Uh, you know what? That's exactly what the first centers do. They're looking at young adults. How do I empower them? How do I get in the workforce? How do I teach them to drive? Like everything that you do. How do I do an interview? And then with Florio, it's how do I hit more and more rural communities? Or how do I hit services that people can't get through virtual technology? Is there anything that you've kind of seen out there be like, you know what, this product looks like it could be really cool and could help. And I don't know for sure if it will, but could help with our wait list problem. Um, have you seen any of those innovations out there that excite you?
1: Yeah, I, I have. Let me, let me just highlight too. And um, again, this, this comes back to like just the absolute passion that our field has and how many, how many smart and dedicated and humble people are out there trying to make a difference for families living with autism. So one of those is Goalie. Um, Goalie is an app. It, there's actually a device that comes with an iPad um, and um, it does a couple of things, but primarily it empowers uh, uh, kiddos, generally older kiddos, um, you know, maybe middle school and, and above, um, but um, to, to build out and plan their own schedule and manage that. Um, it also, and this is, this is perfect for parents, you, know, you could actually like set up parent trainings from a BCBA and get, um, you know, as opposed to just hey do X Y Z right, um, uh, you could get um, you know behavior skills training informed curricula and engagement with a BCBA to start working on some of those things before you get treatment. So I think that's powerful. There's an organization out of Virginia called Answers Now, um, and um, they provide uh, virtual. ABA services. So, their focus again is on parent training, and they've sourced um, they've sourced providers uh, BCBA's from all over the country. Um, and and one of the things they do is you know if a if a family's on a wait list, um, they'll go out and they can provide pa- that kind of parent training remotely, uh, wherever the family's located around the country, and um, uh, you know and get some of those services initially kicked off. So I think those things are are exciting. I think there's. Um, there's some other really exciting technology that's emerging and I'll just I'll put put one of those out there I don't know if you're familiar with ICHOM it's uh I don't remember exactly what it stands for it's the international standards set for a whole variety of different health and medical disciplines but the autism um, uh, ICHOM standard set which identifies outcomes for kiddos with autism was just released and so, um, there's a, I think there's a consortium of, of, of large providers that, that's that been involved, and now there's a, a separate a, a data company that's building out um, a, a, a data warehouse and a way that ABA providers can input their data. And I think that's coming back to this idea of how do we focus on clinical quality? It's, um, you know, we gotta look at that data. And I know in behavioral health, more generally in ABA, it's hard to look at. Um, you know, we don't have randomized clinical trials, right? This is single subject design research that you know inform this body of evidence around why ABA is so powerful. Um, and I think it is possible to start looking at population health outcomes and, and ICHOM is a neat step for that. So I'd encourage every ABA provider uh, to get involved. And the last thing I'll say, and I promise I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll shut up on this. Um, this, is like, this is like the push thing, right? We're trying to push uh, providers to go do these things. There's a pull mechanism here and this is where families can help. If families demand. The highest quality treatment and ask questions around that. That's going to make providers. Figure out ways to do it and the really simple question that I encourage every family to ask um, when when they call an ABA provider. Is. um, In one sentence or less. Can you tell me why you are better for my child? than another ABA provider, and can you show me data that would confirm that? And if every parent who called asked those questions, guess what? It doesn't matter what, what, what our field was talking about or doing, our field would figure out a way right quick to make sure that happened. Now, a proxy for that right now in our field is something like accreditation, right, through a behavioral health center of excellence, um, uh, which they've only Currently, the only ABA accrediting body. There's some others. Um, there are many different accrediting bodies, right? From CARF to Joint Commission. But that is that is a very objective way for a family to understand, um, hey, it you know is is a provider accredited versus not accredited. Um, so that's that, that's the pull method of hopefully getting or uh, moving our field toward um, highest quality clinical outcomes.
0: I I like that question because it also hits into what I I think that we were talking about earlier is just, you know, that that quality department is that if if you are asking somebody for data, then there's got to be a component of your organization that is tracking that data, creating actionable items to improve themselves off that data, and that is able to share that so that there's transparency. And it goes back to those key points that you were talking about, dignity transparency, communication, empowerment. If all that's in place, I mean, we're just in a better position as an industry, which puts families in a better position. Uh, you had mentioned Goalie, and I, I, it kind of gets me thinking, just, uh, you know, I'd I've spoken with you in the past, and you, you have all these really fun ideas for your predictions for where things are going and what's going to happen next. And when you brought up Goalie, it, it kind of hit on my crazy prediction, which I don't think should be crazy, nor is it. It's that we're going to see more autistics driving care within the ABA space. I think that you're going to see a lot more of this ability to be able to take perspective and modify treatment by being more socially conscious and being able to understand the population that you're working with. I think we're seeing that right now. But I think that you're gonna see more and more of that through self-advocacy. Uh, what's, your, what's your crazy prediction that, that you're gonna say, hey, over the next five, 10 years or longer, this is what we're gonna start seeing. And, and it kind of it, it's the one thing maybe people don't have on their radar.
1: Yeah. Oh gosh, I have so many crazy predictions, Jeff. <laughs> Let me see if I can. Um, in on a couple. So one is, uh, and I'm a broken record uh, about this. Um, our field is moving toward value-based care that is away from fee for service, um, where, you know, uh, you get for every hour of service you bill or for every procedure you bill, you get paid to getting paid for the outcomes that you deliver. And this is something that's happening around the rest of healthcare. Um, and, um, I think many, many people in the, in the, in the field might say we're probably five to 10 years away from that, if ever, and it's because of all the the hard, it's really hard, right, to measure population level health outcomes. My sense is we're going to move toward that much more quickly, and um, that's going to force uh, quality conversations um, to families' benefits, right? That's going to force that to happen much more quickly. Here's another crazy prediction. Um, I mean, you've heard about Blockchain, right? And the big thing with blockchain now is that it underpins Bitcoin and Dogecoin, all these crazy cryptocurrencies. But hear me out for a moment. So blockchain is a technology, it it, it, it serves as this like transparent, universal, um, um, irrefutable ledger of transactions. I believe the healthcare system is moving toward um consumers being able to there being one blockchain for consumer information, health information that right now probably exists if you were to go out and find it in, I don't know, the hospital you went to because you broke your arm and then it's in with your primary care physician and then it's with your whomever, right? It's all over the place. At some point, that's going to exist on the blockchain. It's going to be highly secure. um, And and that's important, not only because families will have access to it, families will have ultimate control then um, or patients will have ultimate control over it um, to then... Inform much better care coordination practices, which is something that I think all of healthcare and certainly ABA struggles struggles with. Um, and an even crazier particular around this is once once a patient owns that information, think about the ways that um, um, you know a genetic testing company might ask, "Hey, are you willing to opt in and we'll pay you a hundred bucks?" Or you get to choose if you're um, how that information gets used. So I think that's uh, um, I think it's coming. The, the last. One I'll share um, and this is you know more specific to ABA, um, but we see it in treatments of sort of these complex populations as insurance companies would would describe it of working with um, you know many kiddos with autism have um, multiple diagnoses right not just an autism diagnosis I think we're moving um, as a field toward a medical home model that is and that's not a, a physical home that's sort of this term that describes um, a range of different services generally anchored by a primary care physician like a pediatrician um, but that would extend into you know treatment ABA treatment um, to gastroenterology right and other sort of uh, physical medical um, needs to, to a whole range of different kinds of treatment and we'll start to see ABA providers evolving not to be ABA providers but be more broadly autism care providers who can help to either directly provide each of those services or likely more likely um, Coordinate care extremely well, so a family has one seamless, unified experience in getting access to this—you have know, the life-changing care that they deserve.
0: Yeah, you know what—I can't wait to see your copyright on your on your blockchain healthcare autism model <laughs> eventually. But um, that that last piece, I I do agree, is so crucial. It's it's having maybe even right now making sure that that communication is ongoing, and it goes back to those those core values that you described. But one of them is communication and that's got to be provider to provider as well we're treating a patient that is it's a holistic approach is that autism cannot be treated in a silo you have to be able to communicate you have to be able to share that information to inform decision making and i think that the more we keep making small steps the closer we're going to get to what you're describing as that medical home care model Um, i do want to kind of get right back to where we talked on the wait list because i want your advice to parents I want to hear, you know, what it is that Jonathan Mueller is telling parents right now as they come in, knowing that there's the potential for a wait list. What is that final piece of advice? Is it that, you know, uh, get yourself, uh, follow our parent training curriculum, uh, make sure that you're following up with uh, different providers on a different basis? I mean, what are you telling them right now in that situation?
1: So one is relentlessly advocate for your child. What we have seen, and this plays out in any age of kiddo, um, and, uh, and certainly in older kiddos when it comes to individual education plans at schools, where we see, um, again, this is broadly across the field, families getting access to services of getting their needs met. It's those families that are most actively advocating. And when I say actively advocating, it means, um, I mean, certainly trust what a provider might tell you um on the phone as you're talking to them um, but get as specific as you can follow up um, you know ask for things in writing ask for documentation um as you need it if if something was meant to happen like there was going to be a, a diagnostic report that had to be um, sent over from your pediatrician don't wait and, and just hope that happens usually it does a lot of times it doesn't follow up and call. Don't just assume that those communication touch points um, are always going to happen. Um, and so I think relentlessly advocating for your kiddo is the most important thing. Um, I think the other is, um, and there are access to a lot of free resources out there, but this is, this is a, a, another terrific question to ask when you call is what curriculum or what resources can you share with me right now that I could get started on working with my child? That's crucial. And I want to come back to something I put a pin in earlier, you know, for for kiddos with um, with private insurance, you know, the, the United, Cigna's, Aetna's, Blue Cross, etc., you do need an autism diagnosis for ABA. For families who have Medicaid, an autism diagnosis is not required to get treatment. And so if you do have Medicaid and, and um, you know, the state that you're in, ABA is covered, um, you can start to get access to to treatment more quickly even without that diagnosis. But this comes back just relentlessly advocating for your kiddo um, is one of the most powerful things that, um, that you can do.
0: Yeah, and it sounds like you're also saying is that as an organization, there's a role to be able to play in helping to advocate for your patients. It's uh, So as a parent, you can advocate as an organization is that you can make sure your benefit department can go through and check on that Medicaid benefit that you're discussing there, that they can make sure that they're looking at all options for you so that you're not stuck. And, and it goes back to those wow moments. It goes back to what we talked about at the very beginning of every single child that comes through is a child that has so much potential, so much current ability To be able to access so much of the world around them and i think that if we can get kids into care make sure that that care is quality care and continue to push the boundaries to be able to make our field stronger and more efficient at the same time focusing on that quality again is that that is the final solution to be able to get to all those crazy ideas that we had put out there initially so but I, I appreciate your time today, Jonathan. I, I think that um, I can see the passion. Um, I can tell that uh, what you're saying is, is what you believe. And it's, it, it's got to trickle down to your organization, which is something that uh, I, you can attest to. I, uh, I appreciate the opportunity to share um,
1: my passions for getting families access to highest quality treatment.
0: Thank you for listening to Autism Weekly. We hope you tune back in next week to learn more about autism in the real world. Autism Weekly is now found on all the major listening apps, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music, and more. Subscribe to be notified when we post a new podcast. Autism Weekly is produced by ABS Kids. ABS Kids is proud to provide diagnostic assessments and ABA therapy to children with developmental delays like autism spectrum disorder. You can learn more about ABS Kids and the Autism Weekly Podcast by visiting abskids.com. Thanks for tuning in. See you again next week.